Hello and welcome back to the Clinical Update podcast from MIMS Learning. I'm Pat Anderson, the editor of MIMS Learning, and today I'm excited to welcome back from maternity leave our deputy editor, Rhiannon Ashman. Hi, Rhiannon. Hello. Rhiannon will be joining us in the final segment of our podcast, but in the meantime, our medical editors, Dawn Powell and Sangeeta Krishnan, will be talking about some new developments in cardiology. And later, I'll be interviewing Professor Michael Kirby about the tricky subject of erectile dysfunction. We'll wind up with three key points on HIV guidance based on Dr. Tony Hazel's learning module. As ever, we aim to support you in your practice as a healthcare professional. We're not clinicians ourselves, but in this podcast, we highlight some of the best bits from our online and live education. This is all written by experts with direct experience of clinical practice and can be found either on the MIMS Learning website or as part of our MIMS Learning live events. So let's get on with the show. I'll hand over to Dawn and Sangeeta for a hearty discussion of an important topic. Thanks for the introduction, Pat. I'm going to talk today about a module that is on the cardiology page of the MIMS learning platform, the diagnosis and management of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction by Drs. Mark Sweeney and Nicholas M. Quaif. I want to discuss this module to highlight that heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or just preserved, is a different beast from heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, or just reduced. So first off, let's go over the difference between preserved and reduced ejection fraction. Ejection fraction, or left ventricular ejection fraction, to give it its full title, is a measure of systolic function. It is, according to the American Heart Association, a percentage of how much blood the left ventricle pumps out with each contraction. A normal EF is between 55 and 70% and a reduced EF can indicate that the heart is not functioning properly. To get technical, reduced is when EF is below 40% and preserved is when the EF is above 50%. In between these two categories is heart failure with mildly reduced EF, which is when the EF is between 40 and 50%. Another key difference between preserved and reduced is that preserved is typically a cardiac manifestation of systemic disease, whereas reduced is when cardiac pathology is the primary disease. Sangeeta, you've had a look at the module. Did you have any questions? Yes. So how common is heart failure with preserved ejection fraction? Well, according to Dr. Sweeney and Quaife, the preserved is increasingly being recognised as a cause of heart failure, accounting for around 50% of all cases. It is more common in women and is seen as a disease of ageing, with incidence markedly increasing in the seventh of eight decades of life. So given that preserved is quite common, a GP is likely to come across people with preserved in their practice, right? How can they differentiate between preserved and reduced? Well, I mean, obviously, I'm not an expert, but I don't think they can, to be honest. The symptoms of preserved are similar to those of reduced. So, for example, exertional breathlessness or peripheral edema and serum neutriuretic peptide levels, or I think it's BMP, will be abnormal in preserved just as they will be for reduced. The only way to determine whether a person has preserved or reduced is via echocardiogram. Therefore, while a GP based on the clinical presentation may think a person has preserved, they would need to refer that person to an echo to confirm it. To a patient, preserved EF might sound better than reduced EF. So is it easier to manage than reduced? 
No, actually, it's the opposite. So preserved is more challenging to manage than reduced. Until recently, studies showed that the typical treatments for heart failure, such as beta blockers or ACE inhibitors, did not improve outcomes in this group. Therefore, Dr. Sweeney and Quaife note that the goals of management in preserved are the control of volume status and the management of comorbidities. What about SGLT2 inhibitors? Well, in preserved at least, SGLT2 inhibitors have provided a beacon of hope. Studies have shown them to improve cardiovascular outcomes in this population, making them the first drugs to do so. However, the slight caveat is that these benefits were driven by a reduction in hospitalisation for heart failure rather than a reduction in cardiovascular death. And... With one studies, the benefits were predominantly seen in people with suboptimal EF, so perhaps people edging towards having a mildly reduced EF rather than preserved. All right, so can SGLT2 inhibitors then be used to treat preserved? Yes, Dr. Sweeney and Quaife comment that going forwards, SGLT2 inhibitors are likely to be increasingly used for preserved, albeit initially via specialist services. They say that patients with a firm diagnosis of preserved should be started on these treatments, particularly those who have had repeated hospital admissions with pulmonary oedema or fluid overload. Well, thanks so much for discussing this module with me, Sangeeta. Just to say that the module is part of a wider learning plan we have on heart failure. The plan also looks at imaging and heart failure, the management of reduced and remote monitoring of pacemakers and other heart failure technologies. Thanks very much, Dawn and Sangeeta, for discussing that module. We'll go now to our interview with Professor Michael Kirby, which it will discuss erectile dysfunction and to a certain extent will continue the cardiovascular theme. So today I have with me Professor Michael Kirby, who's a former GP, urology specialist and visiting professor at the University of Hertfordshire. Welcome, Professor Kirby. Hello. So I have a few questions for you about erectile dysfunction and its management. So firstly, can you explain what is erectile dysfunction? Well, it's defined as the persistent inability to attain or maintain an erection sufficient for satisfactory sexual intercourse. And how common is it and who does it usually affect? Well, actually, it's frighteningly common up to 70% of men, as they get older, may develop erectile dysfunction. And up to 75% of men with diabetes eventually develop erectile dysfunction. So it's a really big problem, actually. And what's the impact of the condition on someone who has it? It's devastating for both the man and his partner. If we talk about the partner first, I mean, she perhaps can't understand it. Perhaps she thinks I'm not attractive anymore. Perhaps her partner's having an affair. All sorts of worries and, of course, concern. Whereas the man, he feels he's lost his manhood. He feels less of a man. It leads to depression, anxiety and all sorts of problems, really. It's a very big issue. But the problem is that neither the man nor his partner find it very easy to talk about it. To each other and they find it very difficult to talk to health professionals as well. So it remains a hidden problem within our community and I often say if we don't ask, patients don't tell. 
Yes, that's very interesting. And obviously, I guess what you're saying applies very much to same-sex relationships as well as to heterosexual relationships. Yeah, I think it's rather worse in same-sex relationships, actually. Certainly, same-sex men, if they have prostate surgery or something like that, and they're used to having penetrative sex via the anus, it becomes very difficult to penetrate if you haven't got a good erection. And if you're the receiving partner where the prostate's been removed or treated with radiotherapy, the area becomes really tender. So it's a very big problem for same-sex couples. Thank you for that. Really helpful to explain that. So how might a man present to a GP and should GPs be asking proactively? Well, I think they should be asking proactively, yes, because as I said, patients don't tell. Often it's something the patient will bring up when they're on their way out of the appointment. Oh, by the way, or they may come and say, you know, I do have problems with an erection, which of course it is very helpful, but often they won't. So we have been encouraging practice nurses and GPs, particularly running diabetes clinics, to ask the question. And it was in the corp actually for one year. They took it out of corp after a year. I don't know why. I think they assumed that everybody thought it was such a good idea they'd carry on doing it without getting paid. <laughs> I don't know. They took it out, which was a shame. We did an audit of the questions being asked before and after corp, and actually things got worse after rather than better. So it certainly didn't encourage people to do it. But when they were doing it, they picked up a lot of men previously undetected with erectile problems. Okay. So you mentioned erectile problems following prostate cancer treatment. So obviously that makes me think there must be sort of primary erectile dysfunction and secondary. So if you're trying to elicit the cause what kind of history and investigations would be relevant? Yes, well, well, it's, of course, very common in cardiovascular disease. And one of the things that got me interested, as I was doing a lot of cardiology at the time, is that ED stands for endothelial dysfunction. In other words, having poor erections is a marker of underlying vascular disease. And I often tell the students that The penis is the window to the hearts of man. And if you ask the question about erection problems, you will identify men who are carrying a burden of cardio risk factors that perhaps nobody knows about. Older age, sedentary lifestyle, obesity, dyslipidemia, metabolic syndrome, diabetes and smoking are all common causes of endothelial dysfunction leading to uh, erectile dysfunction. Okay, and so what sort of investigations might the GP conduct if the person has said to them, I've got these problems? Yeah, it's important to exclude the common causes, which include testosterone deficiency. So it's mandatory to do a a morning testosterone blood test. HbA1c to exclude diabetes or pre-diabetes. Blood lipid profile to exclude hyperlipidemia. A thyroid function test, I think, is also quite important. And if you suspect other conditions such as kidney disease or liver disease, you might include kidney function and liver function tests. Because often if the man has significant abdominal obesity, he will have fatty liver disease as well, which of course is another marker of 
premature vascular disease. Right. So, and then what would be the next steps after the series of investigations you might conduct? Well, I think you want to try and work out whether it's a primary or secondary cause. They need a good medical history. It's very important to inquire about lower urinary tract symptoms because one of the tests we should be doing if we're going to treat the men is to do a PSA test to exclude an underlying small prostate cancer. So that should be included on the list of tests. And I think a careful history. And then once you've made up your mind what the cause might be, if the cause is manageable, that would be the first thing to do. So if they've got raised lipids or raised blood pressure or raised blood glucose or a low testosterone, these are all things that can be managed and treated very effectively. But at the end of the day, correcting the underlying vascular abnormality may not solve the erectile problems because inevitably it's been going on a long time. And it's interesting that what happens as probably the first sign is that men lose their nighttime erections. Now, nighttime erections are not there because they're dreaming about their beautiful partners. It's there to supply oxygen to the penis at night. So men should be getting about 40 or 50 minutes of nighttime erection. And the purpose of that is to supply oxygen to the smooth muscle content of the penis. And what happens if you lose nighttime erections, then you lose structure within the penis. You lose smooth muscle and that gets replaced by connective tissue. So putting people on a PD-5 inhibitor on a daily basis, such as Tadalafil 5 milligrams daily, will quite quickly restore the nighttime erections. And once they start to come back, then getting an erection it may be much easier under the right circumstances. PD-5 inhibitors don't give erections during the day without sexual stimulation, but they do return nighttime erections. So how does psychological therapy fit in with the picture? Well, inevitably, these men get performance anxiety. This takes me back to caveman days. If you're having wild sex in a cave and a tiger walked in, you'd either have to run or fight. So that produces adrenaline to facilitate the running or the fighting. But adrenaline switches off an erection immediately. And I think that's a, a reflex to preserve the reproductive ability of the species so the penis doesn't get damaged in dangerous situations. So if you produce adrenaline because of anxiety about performance, am I going to lose my erection? Is this going to be embarrassing? Am I going to be able to maintain it long enough to satisfy my partner? Those sort of feelings in the mind can just switch off the erection. So psychological therapy can be really helpful when managing performance anxiety. And also, I think couple therapy can be very helpful, too, because if the partner understands where things are going wrong, she can often help the man. Certainly men who have had diabetes for many years, they do get a neuropathy. So they actually need more foreplay, more tactile stimulation than men without a neuropathy. So if the partner understands that, and that same thing applies to men after prostate cancer or bladder cancer or colon cancer or even lung cancer, all these cancers lead to erection problems. So if the partner understands and can support her partner, that can be very important. And 
things like shared use of a vacuum device that can make a difference. There are various costadil pellets that men can use inserted into the penis, or they can be taught to self-inject with Cavaject or Invicorp. And of course, the last resort for men who've had cancer and been cured is to have a penile implant. So there is something for everybody. It's just a matter of trying one thing first, then the next, then the next, and if all fails, off to see a urologist. That was going to be my, my next question, was when would referral be warranted and what's the referral pathway that you'd follow? Yeah, I think it's to urology. So if you've tried all the first measures, PD-5 inhibitors, psychosexual therapy, vacuum devices, intrauteral or intracorporeal prostadil, and none of those have worked, then I think a visit to a urologist is quite important. And are there red flags that GPs should be looking out for if they're in the process of trying to manage a patient with ED? I think, obviously, doing the PSA is important to make sure there's not an underlying prostate cancer. But I think testing for testosterone is really important because the treatments for ED will not work in the presence of a low testosterone. So replacing testosterone, if it's deficient, is a first measure, but you shouldn't replace the testosterone and wait for things to get better because they'll probably take up to six months for the benefit to occur with testosterone. So combination therapy with testosterone and a PD-5 inhibitor simultaneously is the way to go forward. And if you have comorbidities such as cardiovascular disease, diabetes and so on, are there situations where the the pharmacological options that you'd use are not suitable because of all the other medications that they're taking or because of the condition itself? That's a very good question, Pat, because it's particularly pertinent to men being treated for hypertension because almost all the antihypertensives are rather bad for erections. The only class of antihypertensive which actually improves erectile capacity is ARB drugs, antitensin receptor blocking drugs. So that would be the first choice when treating men with erectile problems to use an ARB drug rather than a calcium channel blocker or an ACE inhibitor or an alpha blocker. So if you had a patient who was on a sort of antihypertensive that could be implicated in erectile dysfunction, would you perhaps take them off it and replace it with something else as one of the first steps? You take them off the one that's likely to be causing erectile problems. Right. And to replace it with something like Losartan, an ARB drug. And often that can be very successful. That's very interesting. So when you speak, I know that you do a lot of talking at conferences and events and a lot of education. When you speak to GPs about this issue, what do you feel are the key things they need to know? To ask about sexual function during routine surgeries in men who may be at risk of getting it. Older men, those who are overweight, have dyslipidemia, metabolic syndrome, diabetes or heavy smokers, or have been treated for cancer. It's very important to ask the question, do you have any problems with sexual function? Is this something you'd like to discuss? Because actually you can make a world of difference to someone's quality of life by managing the problem. I think particularly people who have been cured of cancer, they may not 
feel it's appropriate to discuss it with their medical professional because they're lucky they're still alive and perhaps they think the medical profession will not think it's terribly important. But to them, it is terribly important and to their partner too. So it's really important to ask the question in people with cancer, particularly people with diabetes, or particularly people who have de declared themselves as having cardiovascular problems or at high risk of cardiovascular problems. And I think it gives you an opportunity to think laterally, am I managing this cardiovascular risk adequately? Is the LDL cholesterol nice and low? Is the blood pressure treated? Is the diabetes well managed? Are we using some of the newer anti-diabetes treatments such as the SGLT2 inhibitors or the GLP-1 agonists? Because they offer additional cardiovascular benefit to people with type 2 diabetes. So there's lots of opportunity, not only to treat the erectile problems, but to also do better with managing the cardiovascular risk problems. And I think one very important thing to mention, which most GPs don't realize, is that PD-5 inhibitors were initially cardiovascular drugs. They were only researched for ED because the men in the first study refused to give the medication back at the end of the trial because of the sexual benefits they'd accrued. Then the companies forgot they had a cardiovascular drug and just researched it for sexual problems. But we've done one study looking at a GP database, a very large GP database, and we found that men who were being prescribed a PD-5 inhibitor had a 38% less risk of having a cardiovascular event over the next three years. And a year later, there was a, a research group in Sweden who looked at men with cardiovascular disease. They did the same thing. Are you taking a PD-5 inhibitor or not? And they found exactly the same figure, nearly a 40% reduction in cardiovascular death. And there have been two recent large database studies in the States where they looked at men with lower urinary tract symptoms and they found the same type of reduction in cardiovascular death because PD-5 inhibitors improve endothelial function. And I've already reminded you that ED equals ED. So you can do these patients a lot of good by treating them with a PD-5 inhibitor. You can improve their cardiovascular risk profile. And of course, daily Tadalafil is licensed to treat lower urinary tract symptoms. And 75% of men with ED will also have lower urinary tract symptoms. And these men will come back and say, I'm so grateful, doctor, because I'm not getting up in the night like I used to. And my urinary flow is better. And I'm not having the urinary urgency I used to get. And I can now make love to my wife again. <laughs> yeah, so that's a win on many counts. So would you be able to talk about a person, maybe a patient or a clinician who's inspired you? in this area of practice? Yes, well, actually, I can very easily because I mentioned I was doing quite a lot of cardiology when this first blew up when there was a cardiologist, Dr. Graham Jackson, and it was he who coined the phrase ED equals ED. And we wrote several papers together. One of the first papers we wrote is, could erectile dysfunction be an early marker of vascular disease? And... Lo and behold, it turned out to be true. 
but he was an inspirational character. He was one of the few cardiologists who were prepared to get interested in ED, to get interested in the attributes of PD-5 inhibitors. And it was unfortunate he developed a rather nasty disease and uh, wasn't able to stay around long enough to keep preaching his sermon about the benefits of PD-5 inhibitors and the importance of erectile dysfunction as a marker of underlying vascular disease. But I try to keep flying his flag on his behalf. Great. And I'm sure there probably is more awareness now of that very issue than there was in the past. So I hope so. Often when I speak about this at meetings, I'm quite surprised that people are still not totally aware of it. It's a really big missed opportunity. And it's so good for the doctor-patient relationship, you know. That is such an important thing in primary care, so trust and the ability to tell your doctor about things that are important to you. If you open Pandora's box about sexual function, then your patients will be very, very grateful forever. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for your time today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for asking me. So we have some modules providing more information about diagnosis and management of ED on MIMS Learning. So do have a look at those. And thank you very much once again, Professor Kirby. Thanks, Pat and Professor Kirby. We're back now for our final segment, which aims to give you three clear and useful practical points to take away. Today, it's guidance on HIV which is discussed in a recently updated learning module by GP Dr Tony Hazel. This module brings together advice from the British HIV Association, the General Medical Council and NICE. First up is Sangeeta. What key point did you take from this learning module? So my key point is undetectable equals untransmissible or U equals U. This essentially means that persons living with HIV who are on antiretroviral therapy and who have an undetectable viral load for at least six months cannot transmit HIV. Though it has been known for years that having an undetectable viral load reduces transmission, since 2017, public health bodies have been able to say that there is no risk of transmission. The Partner and Partner 2 studies followed discordant couples where one partner has HIV and one doesn't, who are having sex without a condom. Over many years of follow-up, the Partner and Partner 2 studies found no HIV transmission. Various organizations have put across public health statements to this effect. So point one is really important. We can now say with confidence that people living with HIV who are on antiretroviral therapy and who have an undetectable viral load for at least six months cannot transmit HIV. This leads us on to our next key point which is that it is inappropriate to deny fertility treatment to a patient based on their HIV status, if they meet other local criteria, of course. The U equals U paradigm that Sangeeta just spoke about means that most discordant heterosexual couples can try to conceive in the usual way. If the partner with HIV is not on antiretrovirals or has a detectable viral load, then there is a risk of transmission with unprotected sex for conception. If the man has HIV, the couple can be referred to a fertility clinic for sperm washing, which is where the sperm cells, which do not carry HIV, are separated from the surrounding fluids, which do carry HIV. And this semen can be used in assisted conception. If the woman is HIV positive, then the couple can try to self-inseminate at home or can have intrauterine insemination. Funding arrangements for this vary from area to area. 
So our second key point is that a person's HIV status is not a reason in and of itself to deny them fertility treatment. This is something that healthcare professionals may be asked about, I would imagine. So it's useful to also remember that because undetectable equals untransmissible, most discordant heterosexual couples can try to conceive in the usual way. And our final key point from Dawn. My point is that in specific circumstances, a clinician can break patient confidentiality and disclose HIV status. The GMC advises that clinicians may disclose information to a known sexual contact of a patient with a sexually transmitted serious disease if they have reason to think that that sexual partner is at risk of infection and that the patient has not informed them and cannot be persuaded to do so. The wording used by GMC is may, not must, implying that there is no obligation. So even if a clinician is allowed to disclose, they do not have to disclose. However, if a clinician does want to disclose a patient's HIV status to their sexual partner, they must inform the patient in advance. And just to note, from a legal point of view, a person with HIV and detectable viral load can potentially face criminal prosecution if they knowingly, that is, know they have HIV and know it is potentially transmissible, have unprotected sex without disclosing their status. Also, just finally, a GP may not know that a patient has HIV because while it is recommended that HIV clinics tell GPs about a patient's HIV status, this does depend on what the patient's wishes are. So to summarise, our three key points on guidelines around HIV are people with HIV have no risk of transmitting the virus as long as they are on antiretroviral therapy and have had an undetectable viral load for at least six months. Secondly, most heterosexual couples with discordant HIV status, that is one person has HIV and the other doesn't, can try to conceive in the usual way and a person's HIV status is not a valid reason to deny fertility treatment. And finally, clinicians may disclose a patient's HIV status to the patient's sexual partner if there's reason to believe the partner's at risk of infection and the patient has not informed them and cannot be persuaded to do so. Thanks very much, Rhiannon, Dawn and Sangeeta, for these three very clear points on HIV guidance. So that's it for this episode. Don't forget you can find the HIV guidance module as well as lots of other learning on our website by visiting mimslearning.co.uk or by clicking the links supplied. We look forward to joining you next time. Goodbye for now.